Lecture Notes, Aristotle, Introduction. The assigned textbook reading for this week is Vaughn, Chapter 5. Aristotle was a student of Plato, but that does not mean that Aristotle automatically agreed with Plato on everything. Just like most of you probably disagree with me about some things. In fact, Aristotle is famously reported to have said, I love Plato, but I love the truth more. This should give you a hint that they had some pretty different approaches to philosophy. Part one on knowledge and reality. We're going to mostly focus on Aristotle's ethics, but before we get to that, I want to do a super quick overview of Aristotle's epistemology and metaphysics. In brief, Aristotle rejected Plato's idea of an eternal immaterial realm of forms, capital F. Neither did he like Plato's idea that the physical world is an imperfect world of becoming, which Plato said was a world that is merely a pale reflection of the world of the forms, the eternal immaterial realm of being. In fact, Aristotle was in many ways a scientist. I always think that if Aristotle was alive today, he would be teaching in the biology department, not the philosophy department. In short, Aristotle was devoted to the study of this world where Plato saw a world of change and decay that could not possibly give rise to knowledge, Aristotle saw a complex and interesting, but ultimately orderly physical world. True knowledge, Aristotle said, comes from scientific exploration, observation, data, and classification, not from pure reasoning or recollecting. Aristotle said that knowledge begins with particulars, by which he basically means particular things. So while Plato would say that we need to know the form of the good in order to know goodness, Aristotle would say that we come to know goodness by knowing particular good things or actions. Again, it might be helpful to think of scientific examples also. Imagine an ornithologist studying birds, a bird species. How does the ornithologist come to know the bird species? Not by reasoning about them or by engaging in the Socratic method. The ornithologist comes to know the bird species by studying bird after bird after bird and taking copious careful notes or more likely in the 20th century, uh, 21st century, entering data in a spreadsheet. Furthermore, Aristotle had some specific objections to Plato's idea of forms capital F. Note that Aristotle's concept of form always has a lowercase f to distinguish it from Plato. I want to go over some of Aristotle's objection to the idea of platonic forms, but before stating them, I have to include a complicating factor. Plato himself raised objections to the idea of the forms in some of his dialogues. This is in keeping with what I noted at the beginning of my lecture notes on Plato, that it's very difficult to pin down what Plato himself actually thought. A huge range of thoughts and ideas are explored throughout his dialogues. First objection. Forms have no explanatory power. They complicate things as opposed to helping us categorize the particular things we experience and help us come to know them. Objection two, how can something independent of a particular be the essence of that particular? I.e., how can an abstract form of beauty be the essence of a particular beautiful painting? Objection three, the idea of particulars participating in a form is mere metaphor, in fact, too metaphorical to be of any use. What could it possibly mean that a beautiful sunset participates in the eternal form of beauty? 
And fourth and finally, the third man argument. Say we have three and only three large things in the world, perhaps a whale, uh, the Sears Tower, and Mount Mitchell, that's a mountain. According to Plato, what makes all three of these things large is that all three participate in the form of largeness. We'll call it largeness one for reasons that will become clear in a second. But now we have four large things. A whale, the Sears Tower, Mount, Mitch Mount Mitchell, and the essence of being large, the form, capital S, of largeness one. But what then makes these four things large? That they all participate in another separate form of largeness, which we shall call largeness two. And obviously we can keep running this puzzle. We can keep asking what holds together the large objects with the essence of largeness and keep identifying new forms of largeness. Section two, hylomorphism. Above I mentioned that Aristotle does have a concept of form, but we use lowercase f for Aristotle's idea of form. For Aristotle, the basic category of being is substance. You are a substance, for example, and properties you have, like being a TJC student, do have a kind of existence, but the existence of properties is parasitic on the primary kind of being, which is substance. There could be no property of being a TJC student if there were no students to whom the property could belong. Substances are made up of two things, according to Aristotle. Matter, stuff that makes up the universe, and form, the essence of a thing, that which makes it what it is. Imagine, for instance, that we were building a house, and in a strange and, frankly, inconvenient move, every single material needed for building the house was just dumped on the building site. All of the matter needed for the house would be present, but the house would not yet exist because the materials would not yet be organized according to their form. In part, the form is about putting the materials in a particular shape or arrangement, in this case, a house-like arrangement, but form also captures the essence or purpose of a thing. The main reason that heap of building materials is not a house is because it cannot serve the purpose or function of a house. You can't live in it. This distinction between matter and form also helps Aristotle capture an important distinction between two kinds of changes. Let's say that you tripped and fell into a vat of blue dye, and when you came out, your skin was bright blue. Obviously, this is a notable and probably regrettable change, but would it change your essence? Would we say that you're a totally different person? No, you would remain you. In fact, that's the whole point. The change, you turning blue, happened to you. Now, Imagine instead that you stepped into a time machine that transformed you into a person from the past. When you step out of the time machine, you find that you've become George Washington. Would this change your essence? Well, it might be that you were simply wearing a kind of George Washington costume, but I'm imagining that you really actually became George Washington. In that case, yes, you would then have a new essence, the essence of George Washington. So let's bring this back to form and matter. In the case where you turn blue, there's just been a change to the substance that is you. 
but you essentially remain the same. In the case where you become George Washington, you yourself have gone out of existence. Your form is no longer organizing the matter of your body, and your matter is now organized by the form of George Washington. These examples are kind of silly, of course, but we can make them much more real and personal by considering, for example, cases of schizophrenia. If someone you know or love has schizophrenia or another similar mental illness, you may have questioned how to reconcile what can seem to be two totally different people. Aristotle doesn't give us an answer about whether they're actually are two different people, but his concepts can give us a way to organize how we think about issues like this. He would say that the question is whether there's just been a change to the substance, the person, akin to you turning blue, or whether the matter of the person has taken on a totally new form and thus has a totally new essence. Section three, four causes. As someone who was deeply interested in science, Aristotle was also deeply interested in causality. We won't go into too much detail about Aristotle's views on causality, but since Aristotle's understanding of causation was highly influential to medieval philosophers in their arguments for the existence of God, I want to give a brief overview of the four types of causal explanation according to Aristotle before moving on to Aristotle's ethics. The four causes for Aristotle are, first, material cause, the matter of which a thing is made, Second, formal cause, the embedded form that gives shape and purpose to the matter. Efficient cause, the triggering action that sets the thing in motion. This is closest to what we think of when we talk about cause, as in cause and effect. And then final cause, the ultimate purpose for which a thing exists. A friend of mine, who's an expert on Aristotle, had a student give this example in his class to illustrate the four causes, and I'm going to steal that student's memorable example. So their example was a golden statue of Beyonce. Material cause? Solid gold. Formal cause? Beyonce's likeness. Efficient cause? The sculptor who made it. Final cause? To praise Queen Bee. <laughs> 